The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. A lot of the most successful entrepreneurs are outliers. They think differently than the rest of us. They look at some mainstream idea, one that everyone else accepts as fact, just differently. Like Airbnb's founders who thought there might be a business in letting ordinary people rent out their spare bedrooms. That seemed wild. Well, today we're talking to someone whose entire career is driven by an outlandish idea. What if aging isn't something that has to happen? What if it's a disease, one that you can even reverse? James Pyre is a scientist by training who went into business. He's the founder of Cambrian, and I'm going to let him explain what that startup does. What I want you to focus on for this conversation is how James thinks. Like all of us, he sees plenty of problems in the world, and he can identify the systems that lead to them. But James is driven by his radical idea to look for new ways to address them. To start things off, we talk about how it is James first began to see aging as a problem. Here's James. I started down this path when I was right around 14. And so when I was an early teenager, my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer. And it was pretty clear he didn't have long to live. Were you close with him? Very close. Like I I looked up to him. I, I would even say that at that point, as I had kind of been thinking about what a well-lived life meant, he was sort of the embodiment of that for me. He was just this really interesting and vibrant guy. And so when he got cancer in his 80s, I felt like there was something so horrible and unjust about that. And I had a, a whole bunch of conversations with him over the year and a half or so as he got sicker and sicker. And I came out of that experience with this feeling that every single person that I knew uh, that I had ever met had this explosive vest that was strapped to our chest at the time we were born, right? And that vest might have a timer of, you know, a few months like my granddad's was, or it might be 80 years. But once I had that vision in my head of like, we're wearing an explosive vest, I couldn't think of anything else to do with my life than try to do something about the timer on that vest. Well, I think that the experience that you had being driven by one big idea is a bit of an unusual experience. Many people don't come to their careers as lucky as having an internal drive around the purpose that they feel that they have. Um, But also, there are a lot of people for whom a sense of purpose around a big idea does exist. And then you you have to sort of get out into the world and figure out how to make good on it. And that's not nearly as simple. So I'm, I'm curious, I would love to hear a little bit about how you came into your young adulthood and the types of jobs and careers you were drawn to as you explored this idea. Where I started with, because of my granddad's experience, um, was actually with cancer. And I just started reading everything that I could about cancer and how it happens and how you could treat it. And what oncologists were saying was that the goal of cancer therapy should be to keep people alive long enough for them to die of something else. And 
when I read that, it, it actually kind of like shattered me. Like I, I felt repulsed by this idea that victory was having that person die of something else. Then I just said, okay, what can I do to be the most impactful working in this field? And so started training in science. I studied immunology, then cancer biology, then stem cell biology, got a PhD, and all the way I was on the path to say, okay, well, I'm going to be a professor and a researcher so that I could make breakthroughs and try to invent some new potential drug in this space that could slow down people's rate of aging. And as I was working in academia, what I saw is that my colleagues around the world started to make these breakthroughs. And we started to move from worms into mice, right? And by the time that I was finishing my PhD, we had gone from, depending on what level of criteria, zero or one drugs that worked at extending lifespan in mice to close to 50. And so my assumption was, when I started my scientific career, that those 50 things should now be making the next jump from mice to humans, but they just weren't. Wait, let's stop and unpack that a second. You work as a career scientist and you make these breakthroughs in the lab and you see the potential for those breakthroughs to travel from mice on and then you hit a wall. Why the wall? Yeah. So I started asking my colleagues, initially scientists, because right. I didn't I didn't know anything about the business world. I didn't know what a venture capitalist was, <laughs> who were the, the people who were really making these decisions. But as I talked to a number of scientists that had made, in my view, fundamental breakthroughs in this space, what kept coming back to me is like, oh, yeah, well, we talked to some of the money guys, and they said it takes hundreds of millions of dollars to go from a breakthrough in a mouse to a marketed drug that passes phase one, then phase two, then phase three of clinical trials, and you can't run a clinical trial for aging. So all of these breakthroughs that have been made in the study of aging can't be commercialized because you can't run a clinical trial for them. Okay, that's super interesting. I'm just even trying to think about what that could look like. Of course you can't run a clinical trial for aging. Right. And, and so I started thinking about it. And it does make good sense, right? If you take an experimental drug and I take a placebo, how long do we have to wait to see if this drug slows down aging? It could be decades, right? right? And that's way too long to build a business case around these drugs. Right. And so sort of the, the thing that I came to when talking to these folks, I just thought of them as like the money people um, in this world were missing, right? The VCs, the pharma companies that weren't doing this. And that was that if you had a drug that extended healthy lifespan, what that drug was really doing was that it was preventing the diseases of aging, right? It right. was a drug that was preventing a mouse from getting cancer, neurodegeneration, heart conditions, et cetera. And if you were affecting something in the fundamental biology of an animal that could prevent all of these diseases at one time, there had to be at least a couple of diseases where the specific thing that was being affected by that drug was way out of whack, and that these drugs could be treatments as well. They just hadn't been tested first as treatments. Like when you develop a cancer drug, you know, you're testing it to see if it can kill cancer cells. Right. But what we had here was a whole bunch of prevention drugs right. that might also be able to kill cancer cells or help with arthritis right. or help with some other disease, but we just hadn't tested them for that yet. And there was some emerging evidence that as scientists started asking these questions of other diseases, that they kept finding success after success by targeting these fundamental drivers of aging. And so that allowed me to put together this idea of, hey, maybe there's something that the VC world is missing. 
and we could help create this framework that could allow us to take these discoveries and use them for existing diseases today and prevention kind of trials for aging tomorrow. And that was sort of the jump to my business career. So sort of like a longevity backdoor. Yeah, I've I've described it as like a Trojan horse before. (laughs) So James, the James who completed the PhD work and toward the end of the PhD work, put this all together. At that point, I would assume that your closest colleagues and confidants were perhaps academics. And introducing this idea probably was fairly different. What happened for you next in your career? At that point, I knew I needed to learn a little bit about the drug development world to see how the strings were pulled on determining whether to invest or not into one of these you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars drug development projects. And so I spent a short time working as a consultant for the big pharma companies, where I would basically help them figure out if they wanted to acquire a, an aspiring drug that had maybe passed mouse trials or maybe was just starting in human trials. And what I learned were two things. Number one, those drugs were worth a lot. On average, right, a discovery in, in mice that was starting to generate good data in humans was worth like half a billion dollars. And number two, the types of science that these drugs were, were affecting, the types of molecular mechanisms we call them, were not that different than the world that I had been studying in the aging biology world. And so spending a little bit of time doing this for pharma companies, I was able to say, oh, hey, maybe there's a way that I can do this in the aging field. And I pulled together this idea for a venture fund that could build companies from breakthroughs that happened in the aging field, in this longevity field. And I was extremely lucky to find a few wealthy and passionate folks to back that idea that wanted to also invest in this space, that saw this opportunity, got to start a VC in that uh, in that field, which I built for a few years before realizing that this wasn't just you know two or three opportunities that we had available to us in this longevity world. It was 20 or 30 or 50. When you say opportunities, I just want to really make sure I understand what it is you're talking about, James. You're saying that you saw the potential for 20 or 30 or 50 drugs that could have immediate impact and also potential long-term significant impact on the aging process. That's exactly right. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, James will explain what drives aging. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. 
Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. So there are lots of drugs that are already on the market to treat illnesses. James is interested in these drugs. He says that some of them can be given to a healthy person to prevent an illness before it even happens, say arthritis or cancer. James focuses on drugs that address the drivers of aging. I asked him for an example. One example that I think a lot of people know is the shortening of the telomeres Mm -hmm. as we age, right? So... Within each of our cells, we have all of our chromosomes, which are linear strands of DNA. At the end of those chromosomes, there are these repeated sequences. And every time a cell divides, you lose a little bit from the end of each of those strands. And so when a cell divides once or twice, that's totally fine. But by the time it's doing its 50th division, it sends a signal to the rest of the cell that like, hey, we actually don't have much buffer on these extra strands that we had left. Let's stop dividing from now, for now. And it will go into a permanent, non-dividing, what we call a quiescent state or a senescent state. Yeah. Um, And that I'm glad I'm glad to hear you describe that a little bit. And also, I think you're you're likely right that that's one that many of our listeners will have heard of before. Something that we we read about. Um, and give us an example of a drug that you're excited about the potential for today. There are a f- lot of them. So Cambrian has 18 drugs in development right now. One of the ones that I think I would pull out, there is a drug called rapamycin. And this drug is becoming quite well known because it's the drug that does the best job extending the healthy lifespan of mice. Hmm. So you give it to mice and it extends lifespan by up to 20%, right? So if you, if that worked one-to-one in humans, right, that would be like 15 years of extra healthy life for a human. Wow. We don't think it's going to work plus 15 years in humans, but that's sort of the equivalence rate that we're talking about. And then rapamycin also happens to be an already FDA-approved drug. So it was approved in the late 90s. And so there's been a lot of speculation around, oh, hey, could this be an already approved longevity drug? But the problem with rapamycin is that the thing it was approved for was to immunosuppress patients that are getting kidney transplantations. And and it turns out that its immunosuppressive effects are actually a side effect of what the actual drug is doing, which is to help with all of these aging processes. And so A number of scientists have been working for years and years to try to ask the question, oh, could we create a drug like rapamycin that has all of the benefits for aging, but not this immunosuppression downside? Right. 
the, the downside that is actually the upside that got it approved by the FDA. Exactly. And so a group at Novartis helped crack this code. Novartis, the big Swiss pharmaceutical yep. giant, they cracked this code about a year ago and created a drug that, that did this, but didn't quite know exactly what they wanted to do with it. Is that because now, if it is in fact understood as a longevity drug, there's no way to create a clinical trial to test it? It's less that there is not a path forward and more the path forward is quite new. The interesting problem with rapamycin is a paradox of choice that this drug has now been shown to help uh, some disease or another in more than 2,000 different trials. And it seems to be beneficial to almost every condition known to man. And so the question is, if you're a pharma company, is what do you start with? Yeah. And we provided some of the strategy and the capital and are moving that drug towards the clinic in the next relatively near future. I can't put an official time on it, but it's going to be in humans soon. Um, that is really exciting. So to come back to the, the big idea here, when you're thinking about extending healthy life, um, why why? All these years later, is that still what drives you? Why, when we understand so much about the context of humans on the earth and humans have a sort of bad track record, especially in the last few hundred years of being terrible to the earth, and the idea of overpopulation is like, and by the way, I know I've heard you on this question on other podcasts, so I'm not the first to ask it of you. It's a terrible, terrible idea. Like, why is it so important? I get individually, but in the aggregate, to help humans live longer. So there's a few ways to tackle this question, which is a really serious question that I think should be tackled head on. Yeah. There are three ways I think about it, and we can just punch through these three relatively quickly. The first is to just acknowledge that we have to be better to the planet from a climate perspective, from how we extract and use resources. But I'm not sure population is the problem for reasons that we can get into in a second. I think it's behavior that is the problem. And one idea that you know is just sort of a thought experiment is that the world is by and large being run by old men. And if old self-interested men are running the world, then if we changed the dial a little bit and made it, oh, well, you know, hopefully not all old men, but if the people running the world knew that they were going to be experiencing the world that they were creating, wouldn't it be more likely that people would make a little bit more long-termist, a little bit more thoughtful decisions in the future? So I don't think that that's going to change the behavior zero to one, right. um, but I think it's like kind of a thing to help. But then I think the two more substantive pieces are so, so-called like the other side of the coin. So the first is that if we think overpopulation could be a problem. The first thing to mention is if we had a drug that extended healthy lifespan by five or 10 years, it would make almost no change in human population. We've been experiencing this exponential explosion as we've defeated what were our previous major killers, right? Which were infectious diseases. And people used to have lots and lots of kids, right? right? Average number of children per couple was like five or six. And now it's dropping to two or below across the world as the world develops. And so we're actually reaching a plateau of human population 
by the end of this century. And then the very last thing, which is just sort of a thought experiment, which we don't have to go into deeply, is just sort of the other side of what could be called the Malthusian catastrophe. This whole idea of overpopulation is going to destroy the world, it actually started in the 1700s with the foundation of demography from a guy, Thomas Malthus, who said, oh my God, someday there are going to be a billion people in the world. There's no way that we can farm enough land to support a billion people. And he did all of the calculations and laid them all out in this book. And it turns out his calculations were all very sound and he was completely right, if not for this little thing that happened called the Industrial Revolution that made land way more productive and increased the carrying capacity of the world by a lot. And the reason that I want to bring this up as a thought experiment is that he was so serious about his prognostication and his assuredness of the future that he made a recommendation in his book, which was mass genocide and sterilizations to prevent the world from becoming overpopulated. And so when we talk about, oh, hey, if we build a drug that can, or a series of drugs that can prevent people from getting cancer and Alzheimer's disease and arthritis and all of these things, by even making an argument, oh, hey, we should be worried about overpopulation, by saying we're so sure that we can't handle more people in this world, that we want to doom everyone we know, we better be pretty damn sure that we can't put more people on this planet before we say we shouldn't even investigate these ways of reducing human suffering. Yeah. So that's a long way of saying it, something I feel really passionate about. You know, it actually is making me think of, uh, we had a guest on the show recently and a beautiful thinker, a woman named Rachel Botsman, who we were talking about the impact of unintended consequences. And we were talking specifically and narrowly about the entrepreneurs coming out of Silicon Valley in the middle of the early aughts. What degree should we lean on entrepreneurs to better understand the consequences of the things they're inventing versus trusting that the future versions of ourselves will be able to continue the process of inventing. I'm just sort of curious what you think about that. So it's interesting. I'm in general opposed to what I think of as like the hero myth of the entrepreneur, which is sort of at its height in the world that we're living in right now. I don't have a lot of faith in saying, oh, well, this individual is the only person that can move society forward in this way. I think that ideas whose time has come are the things that move culture and society forward. Only to say that the notion that we could use medicine to delay or help people suffering from the biggest killers of humanity feels like a fundamentally motivating concept for humankind. And if, you know, Salk didn't contribute to uh, the polio vaccine, someone else would have. Vaccines and antibiotics were going to happen because infectious diseases were our biggest killers 100 years ago. Yeah. This notion of preventing the chronic diseases of aging is one that's going to happen because these are the things that kill two-thirds of all people today worldwide. And I am far from the only person talking about this. Um, this idea that we could use our exploding to help prevent a person from becoming a patient, I think that's just an idea whose time is going to come. And the question for me is, can we make that day happen as soon as possible? 
when I get up in the morning, I think about, okay, can I put my effort forward today to like bring that thing that's going to happen a few minutes closer in time? And if I can bring that a few minutes closer in time and what it was otherwise been, that's a really damn good day. That was James Pyre. This week on Office Hours, we're going to talk about unorthodox ideas. What's something you believe in that other people don't? Why do you think this way? Join me and our producer, Sarah Storm, this Wednesday afternoon for Office Hours. Bring your coffee because we'll have ours and we'll talk it all through. You can find us live at 3 p.m. Eastern on the LinkedIn news page or email us for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. Sarah Storm is our producer. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor will live forever. We hope. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday. Thanks for listening. You go by James, right? I go by James, yeah. Excellent. I've never been a Jim. Um, well, you know, I'm a Jesse who is technically a Jessica, but God help me, I've never been a Jessica, so I understand <laughs> you fully. <laughs>